0: To Code Together, a podcast for developers by developers, where we discuss technology and trends in industry. I'm your host, Tony Munkholzmeyer. Today, we're going to talk about enabling machine learning for exascale computing. We're lucky enough to be joined by Taylor Childers, who is a member of the Argonne Leadership Computing Facility Data Science Group, where he works on multiple projects that require deep learning and simulation to be run on large supercomputers. Including preparing for Aurora, the upcoming exascale computer. He has a PhD in particle physics and worked at the CERN laboratory in Geneva, Switzerland for six years before coming to Argonne in 2013. Welcome to the podcast, Dylan. Thanks. So let's just jump right into it. So we're talking about a large scale kind of HPC platform in Aurora. And we're also talking about how you're going to leverage AI to do really cool things leveraging all that hardware. Why is now kind of the right time? to combine this AI and deep learning and leverage it for science?
1: Well, you know, the AI revolution sort of started 10 to 12 years ago, and it was really ignited by industry. Industry had large data sets, you know, places like Google and Facebook, and they had large computing resources. You know, Facebook and Google had large warehouses of computing resources located all over the world. And people were providing them with relatively well-labeled data sets that they could use to run machine learning algorithms and train those algorithms to do things for them. Now, in the basic sciences, you know, I'm personally familiar with high energy physics. We collect very large data sets from our particle accelerators. And we're interested in understanding, you know, the basic laws of the universe we can use techniques like AI, similar to what the industry was using for, say, facial recognition or object ID. We can use those to identify objects in our detectors with our large data sets. And with computer resources like Aurora, which are available to basic science researchers like those in high-energy physics, we can leverage those the same way that Google and Facebook leveraged their large clusters that they have in their warehouses. So we have the big data sets. We've had those big data sets for a long time. Now we're starting to see, you know, the ability to have large computing resources that we can use to do the AI trainings that are required and require those large resources. I mean, that's pretty cool, right? So actually it's interesting
0: because you're actually taking kind of what industry has done and making sure that it works for something, you know, in the scientific field. In the past, it used to be the HPC science field kind of led industry. Now it sounds like in this case, you know, with AI, we're kind of flipping it around the other way.
1: That's right. You know, the experiments at the LHC, for instance, led to the worldwide grid, right? Worldwide cloud for scientists. And that predates, you know, AWS or Google's cloud. When it came to AI. Industry definitely outpaced basic sciences and moved that ball forward and really opened the door to possibilities. And so we're playing a little bit of catch up, but with machines like Aurora, we should be back in the lead, especially in the basic sciences, where obvious is that that's where the DOE and public sector shine. Whereas in the private sector, they're much more worried about different kinds of problems that their users are interested in. Cool. And so with
0: that, what kind of models are you leveraging? You mentioned computer vision. How are you taking those? And what problems are you actually looking at to solve in science today at Argonne National Laboratory?
1: So in preparation for Aurora, we actually put out a call for early science projects. So these are projects that will get first access to Aurora before anyone else. And the idea is they work with us through the development process with Intel, And we try to make sure that those applications are ready to run on day one when Aurora is turned on. Some of those projects include, for instance, a fusion reactor research group. They're a group who are involved with some of the fusion device development around the globe. And one of the things you have to worry about when you're running a fusion reactor, you know, imagine you have a container and you're trying to hold very hot plasma, right? Temperatures of the sun inside using magnetic fields. And you don't want that plasma to touch your container because it'll melt. (laughs) So one of the challenges is as we advance that technology, right? In the beginning, we were using small plasmas. If we lost containment, it wasn't a big deal. Nothing was damaged because everything was really small. Now, as we grow the technology and we are able to hold the plasma stable for a longer period of time, we need to scale up that technology to put them into production. Well, you wanna know ahead of time if your plasma is unstable, and it needs to be quick. In our current project, our goal is to know within 30 milliseconds that we are on a path to losing the plasma. And handwritten human algorithms tend to be slow compared to artificial intelligence algorithms that are developed with modern networks. So this fusion group is using what's called a recurrent neural network, which is really good for processing sequential time data. And they're trying to use that to process all the sensors that exist on a fusion device in order to predict when an instability will occur so that they can avoid losing the plasma in an unsafe way. So with AI, it sounds like we're able to do
0: something that before we weren't able to do. Is that right? Like, I mean, were the hand-coded algorithms not really allowing us to do what we needed to do to make you know, strides forward around the nuclear fusion science?
1: That's right. So you know, humans are really good at pattern recognition in the world around us. When we talk about data analysis, trying to do pattern recognition, often what we do is we go through a series of steps that reduces the complexity of our data until we can put it in a 2D plot. You know, a plot of data that we can then visually inspect and maybe go back and we do it again and we do it again. We iterate that way. Well, a computer isn't limited to two-dimensional pattern recognition and AI has really shown that it can handle multidimensional data and find patterns and be able to accurately predict in those high dimensional spaces what's going to come. And so when you take the hundreds of temperature, pressure, magnetic sensors around a fusion device, and you feed those into a neural network, it can make sense of all of those At the same time, it can analyze them in useful ways to find the patterns that we're interested in. We have to be able to guide it through our training process. For instance, we simulate or also we have some actual recorded data of failures. We can use those to train the AI and say, this is what a failure looks like. This is all the data that we collected leading up to that failure. And... The AI can then learn from our previous mistakes and try to help us identify them in the future so that we don't make them again, essentially. What's really interesting there is like AI is really good at
0: identifying things it's been able to be trained on a lot. Just out of curiosity, if you know off the top of your head, how many failures do we actually have that we feed into this model so that we can get some good output from it?
1: I think the current data set is on the order of hundreds of examples. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, I think we usually think, at least
0: myself as a layperson, when I think of like nuclear fusion, I feel like it's something we do once in a really long time, like the space shuttle launch, you know, that NASA's trying to do. You feel like it happens once in a long time, but really it happens a lot more often, it sounds like. And you guys are really trying to grow this as quickly as possible.
1: Yeah, I mean, we have these facilities, the smaller ones that have been in existence and they record their data all the time. And so we have this data available and now we're trying to use the AI methods. Even though we only have hundreds of examples, obviously those data are recorded at very high rate. So in the end, the amount of data to process is quite large because you're considering measurements at the microsecond scale. So you've got microseconds and you're interested in milliseconds of warning. And so there's quite a bit of data there to mine.
0: Oh, well, that makes sense. I mean you've had systems that are big before at Argonne National Laboratory but Aurora is kind of a whole another scale of compute power and
1: processing power how are you guys planning on leveraging that versus what you guys had before so we're talking about a factor 10 increase in computing power we're also talking about an architecture change right going from a full CPU machine which is what we've had for decades to a hybrid CPU GPU machine, where the GPUs are really capable at handling linear algebra. And machine learning is just a lot of linear algebra. Even though it always sounds very complicated, it's really just a bunch of polynomials that need to be computed across matrices and vectors. The GPUs are really excellent doing those, doing them fast and getting you the results that you need. And that's... Another reason why we think in the fusion re- research case, right, where you can hit that 30 millisecond requirement because you're able to do so many computations per second. Yeah, and you also mentioned that you
0: have kind of a lot of data, and how as the models have grown and the data sets have grown, that's really allowed us to do more novel things in the AI and science space. And moving all of that data can be very expensive and very painful. And so I know that Aurora is kind of targeting a way to leverage Intel's distributed asynchronous object storage, Deos, as part of their workflow. Can you talk about how that helps enable you to get better science and
1: AI work done? Yeah, I mean, when you're using a supercomputer, right? I mean, you've got Aurora, which is going to have more than 60,000 GPUs. And we're doing leadership science, right? I mean, this means that when we run projects on our systems, our goal is to use a full machine, as one machine. So our biggest projects are going to be running all 60,000 GPUs to do single, coordinated calculations. Not only do they need to be able to communicate with each of those GPUs with our high bandwidth network, but we also need to be able to get data in and out. And a supercomputer is very different than your desktop machine, right? Your desktop has all that it needs. It has a hard drive, it has the memory, the compute cores. In a supercomputer, you put all of those things in separate spots. So you've got all your computer power in one place, you've got all your hard drives in another place. And so Deos is the infrastructure that's being developed by Intel to connect our storage to the compute so that you can bring your data in you can take your data out so that's you know a key part of our system and is really important to ensure that the researcher can do the work that they need to do ai is very data intensive right our trainings tend to require lots of data coming through each gpu and you tend to do that in a cyclical way so you know, it'd be really interesting to see speeds that people pull off of Deus as we deploy at the end of this year. Yeah, for sure. The
0: bottleneck, obviously, is how do you get all of the data to the compute to make sure that you can really leverage those 60,000 GPUs, which for most people listening, probably that sounds like a very normal number if you're an HPC person. But for the average person, you know, 60,000 GPUs must sound like a crazy number for them. <laughs> It's impressive, even if you're used to
1: it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and when we talk about kind of how we get all of that data there, when I was working on a data center for Intel, trying to build out a scalable system for AI, we obviously knew that networking and storage were going to be really important to us as well. Can you talk a little bit how some one API components that Intel's providing, like the one collective communications library, one CCL, is being leveraged? And then kind of how Intel's one data analytics library, one DAL, are helping make sure that your guys are able to do the compute-intensive things you need in a way that's really efficient?
1: Yeah, so people who do AI have a common set of tools. Largely, these are Python tools supported by either the open community or the industry folks like Google and Facebook, who are the big supporters of TensorFlow and PyTorch. Those are the leading AI frameworks currently. And then you have Python libraries like scikit-learn. And we've been working with Intel to prepare for Aurora and make sure that these applications are ready for Aurora. So, for instance, with OneDAO, OneDAO encompasses a lot of the traditional statistical learning or machine learning algorithms, right? Like k-means and these sorts of things for clustering or regression. And those live in scikit-learn. So, whenever one of our researchers from, say, high energy physics or biology comes along with their data set and their application that they've been running on their laptop or on their university cluster, they're coming with those libraries. And Intel has been working with us to backend those libraries with the toolkits that Intel have been providing, like OneDAO. So, OneDAO has those optimized. Algorithms inside that make the best use of Intel GPUs and CPUs as they can, and so when you install your Python libraries and you want Scikit-Learn, there's going to be the option to install OneDAL on the backend, so that when you're running on Aurora or say, hey, in the future when you've got your laptop that has an Intel GPU in it, you're going to be able to run that. The same way you would anywhere else, and you're going to get the benefits of the speed ups from the GPU in the case of TensorFlow and Pytorch, it's the same thing between things like OneDal and one CCL, One CCL is very important for the networking for communicating between the GPUs. You know when you're training it on a large scale neural network, typically you are training in what we call a data parallel way. So that means that you've got your model on every GPU and you have to synchronize your model parameters periodically. And to do that, you have to communicate. While every GPU is processing or training the model on different data, the models need to stay synchronized. So we do that by communicating over the network. One CCL is able to do that for us between GPUs on the same computer or GPUs across the network. And a tool like Horovod, for instance, which is a tool that we often use for data parallel training, having that one CCL plugin for the backend is very important. So we've been working to have that ready for Aurora so that we can do that data parallel training across the 60,000 GPUs.
0: That's great. Yeah, the networking part is obviously such a big deal. We were talking about the data sets and I don't know, how big of data sets are you actually talking about? Like when you guys are doing this analysis, are you guys talking, you know, hundreds of gigabytes, tens of
1: gigabytes? What size are you guys actually using for your data sets? It varies a lot based on the domain science. In high energy physics, we probably used to be leading the data size race 20 years ago. Before everyone had a camera on their phone and Facebook, but that quickly outpaced us once the Facebooks were able to collect photos and data from everyone. But we're talking about petabytes per year collected from machines. And then of course, all of the additional simulation and analysis software that goes on top of that. and. Researchers come in with different sizes. So they might have a small portion of that data that they want to analyze. They may bring in large portions of it that they want to analyze. Usually not bringing in petabytes. But some of our most intensive applications produce, you know, tens of petabytes per year on our machines. And that was at previous scales. So, and it tells you something when you're gonna increase the compute capacity by a factor of 10. Now, when it comes to AI, often you know your data size is, is fixed, unlike traditional like simulation, right? In simulation sciences, you're simulating something, and so you produce a lot of data. Whereas in AI, you're producing a model, right? And the model is typically comparatively smaller in memory than the data that you require to to train on. it, So it's the same amount of data and then you do your training in a cyclical way. And obviously, some of the projects in the future are interested in things like continuous learning, where you constantly have a new stream of data coming in and you're updating an old neural network to include that new information. So in that case, you would have a live stream of data, either coming from your detector or uh, outside source. So that's one of the things we'll be working on with Aurora is sort of live data streams, updating ML models, machine learning models as they collect more data. You asked about data sizes. <laughs> <laughs> I would probably say that some of our biggest users are probably going to have data sizes in the range of a petabyte they would actually try and do training on Yeah, that's gigantic though. I mean, such an order of
0: magnitude over what we've been using, you know, we think about as large data sets. So I know that you also have some kind of next gen, I'll say, Intel type hardware, you guys have an AI testbed. How are you guys planning on leveraging that testbed so you can look kind of beyond where you're at now with knowing what Aurora is going to look like? What are you guys looking towards in the future using that testbed?
1: You know, as a research lab, it's important for us to gauge what's happening now, right? I mean, obviously, there's a bit of a hardware renaissance in computing where, you know, you've got Intel coming back to the GPU world in a big way, and you've got other countries investing in custom architecture development. European supercomputers, Chinese supercomputers are all using very different hardware. So it's important for us to be engaged in following that activity. The AI testbed is an outgrowth of that goal. Our testbed is really geared toward partnering with industry, putting their hardware on the floor where our researchers can play with their systems, give them feedback, and have that be a two-way street where they get feedback that they need. And we get early experience with really custom chips that are intended specifically for artificial intelligence. And there's a lot of different methods that are being employed as far as how to design the chips and to make them the most effective. And so we currently have, just counting quickly, currently have five systems on the floor that researchers can gain access to and play with. And one of the ways we want to also keep track for the next few years, where we need to be investigating how to allow our users to effectively use future architectures. Yeah, so that gives you kind of the hardware
0: look of what technologies you're going to be leveraging. What are you hoping as we kind of build out this AI for science program at Argonne and leveraging Aurora, where do you hope that this kind of technology takes us in the next couple of years? That's a
1: good question. (laughs) So, a lot of what you see right now that's very popular in industry are these foundational models, right? These models that can encompass a large corpus of information. And one of the hard things in basic sciences is being able to fully understand everything that came before. And with AI doing very well at language modeling, language understanding, it would be really interesting to be able to build up some basic foundational models that have parsed historical publications, results that curate domain data, right? You could imagine having a foundational chemistry model that has processed all the historical publications about chemistry and of course you can make it as specialized as you want right it might be specific to some corner of the field that you're interested in and i'm sure it will start that way because making monolithic things is hard but having a generic resource that you can quickly check you know has this been done what was the result how was the study point me at the paper, right? Even that would be a huge tool for modern scientists where our domains are so split into the nitty gritty details of every little corner of the science, right? In high energy physics, there are just so many things that you could focus in on and study this one thing for your whole life, right? And every field is that way. You know, biology is... A huge diverse ecosystem of people studying the most complicated systems. And, you know, it would be really beneficial to have these corpuses of knowledge in an easily accessible way versus now I have to go Google search for all the PDFs (laughs) that relate (laughs) to my research, right? I mean, that's just a real challenge. So I think that is something we could easily achieve in the next 5 years because we have the AI technology now we just need to do the work. Obviously I don't expect private industry to do that for us and if they did they would probably keep most of it for themselves because it would be really useful especially for you know materials R&D and so forth. Cool. So almost like democratizing science in some sense. Right? Making it discoverable. Yeah, yeah. Discoverable science exactly. Oh, that'll be great. Okay, I think we're about out of time
0: here. I'd like to thank Taylor for joining us. Thanks, man. It was great talking to you. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. And thank you to our listeners for joining us again on the Code Together podcast. We'll be back with some more interesting topics for you to listen to.